Hi, this is Mike Palmer. Thanks again for listening to Trending in Education. This is another installment of the best of Trending in Ed. This is, in fact, our most downloaded episode ever over the nearly 500 episodes in the series so far. This is with Dr. Rich Milner, who's a professor of education out of Vanderbilt University. He's been doing amazing things since we first interviewed him back in the summer of 2020 when everything was roiling. It was the summer of Black Lives Matter. Rich provided really relevant and insightful perspective based in part on his book, Start Where You Are, But Don't Stay There. Rich is an important thinker on issues of diversity and teacher education, trying to understand how best to educate our teachers so that they're able to engage with difference, so that we're able to mentor and support teachers of color entering into educational pipelines, and so that we can continue to push to provide a truly equitable and inclusive education to everyone out there. It was relevant back in 2020. Two years later, it still certainly resonates with me. I hope you'll listen and enjoy. Tell your friends about what you're hearing here. With no further ado, the best of trending in ed, my interview with Dr. Rich Milner starts right now. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, as always. Delighted to be joined this week by Dr. Rich Milner, who's a professor of education at Vanderbilt University. He wrote a really fascinating book called Start Where You Are, But Don't Stay There, Understanding Diversity, Opportunity Gaps, and Teaching in Today's Classrooms. It was a fascinating book back in 2010 when he first wrote it. It's just been republished by Harvard Education Press. Rich is a fascinating thinker, and I'm really excited to, to get his perspectives, not just on his book, but also on the really complex world that we're living in here in 2020. Rich, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you so much, Mike, for the invitation. I'm really honored to be here. Your dedication of the book was to your twin daughters who just turned 10 or in their 10th year. 10 years ago, you put together this book which is talking about uh, opportunity gaps and teaching in today's classroom. It's still so relevant that it's now being reprinted and updated. And then obviously in light of the, the complex year that we're living in, COVID and Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and everything, the world is extremely complex and being a teacher is extremely challenging throughout everything I've read from you. You've talked about the importance of empathizing. Teachers have a tough job. But I think a lot of what you talked about back in 2010 is still extremely relevant. Can you provide a, a top-level framework for our listeners around what you were trying to go after when you put this book together? Yes, I think that's a really great question. When I wrote the book, I was really interested in supporting, at that time, you know, in 2010, I was working with pre-service teachers, so teachers who were yet to go into classrooms pre-K to 12 classrooms full-time. And I was looking for a text that really allowed teachers to reflect about, think very seriously about the role of diversity and equity in ways that could really complement 
the fabric of the content in which they would be teaching. And so the initial goal was, I really was looking for a text that allowed me to help teachers cultivate learning related to race. So many of our teachers entered the classroom without any conceptions of race or very little. Uh, most of them uh, were white, they were middle-class, they had great intentions, but they carried with them a colorblind orientation, if you will, that did not allow them to look past their own race and their own white privilege, uh, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And I often say that the issue, and one of the things I've tried to help educators understand in general, is that the issue is not so much of people living in white bodies, as much as it is about how people use their whiteness to maintain the status quo. One of the things that I thought was really important in this work and developing the framework was to really help teachers understand and help developing teachers understand that they play a role. There are no neutral spaces in this work. They're either working for racial equity, gender equity, or they're working against it. And so the first tenet of the framework is this notion of the mindset of rejecting colorblindness. The second tenet is really about understanding cultural conflicts and uh, developing understandings of the ways in which our cultural ways of being, our cultural practices impact what we decide to teach, what we decide to emphasize in teaching, how we evaluate student learning, who we decide, uh, you know, the students we decide are smart and capable of success are all shaped by our own cultural experiences and our own sort of cultural ways of being in the world. The third tenet of the framework is around this idea of rejecting meritocracy or really about the myth of meritocracy. So for most of the students with whom I worked and I work, they believe that they are where they are, like, because they work hard, they follow the law and, you know, they, they perform and they are at their sort of rightful place uh, in, uh, in the work. And they don't understand necessarily how systems have operated to privilege them in particular kinds of ways. So a lot of it is shepherding really good-hearted, well-intentioned individuals as teachers into spaces where they understand that they sit where they are because of opportunities that they've had that others may or may not have experienced. The fourth uh, aspect of the framework is really related to expectations, rejecting these deficit mindsets that so many educators hold, right? And some of it is implicit. They they only focus on what young people don't have. They, right. The, the very way we think about what they don't possess, it's this, this idea that students are developing in that every individual brings a level of strengths and assets into the community. And then the, the, the fifth component of the opportunity gap framework uh, really is around place and context. And so helping teachers understand that they are teaching in a particular place, mm-hmm. at a particular time, with particular people, I think is also important in understanding place versus space. So understanding that the place might be broad, right? But the space in which they're working might be more macro. It's the intricacies embedded uh, 
uh, in that. And so the initial book, the 2010 book, really attempted to showcase teachers in different contexts from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, from different socioeconomic status, and so forth, really succeeding in populations with groups of folks who are very different than we did. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot to build on there. So thank you for going through the framework as now we can hit it however it makes sense in the context of the rest of this conversation. I will say it definitely resonated with me. My wife, as I mentioned, who, who has a background in education as well, also was really struck by the framework. Also nice tables. I, I really enjoyed the tables in the book. They help synthesize this stuff and really can help you kind of grab hold of some of this stuff, which can feel a little abstract at times. And it felt a little more practical and uh, applied in its orientation, which I, I definitely appreciated as well. So fast forward 10 years from the publication of that book. Now we're in a, a time that is more racially charged. Maybe the 1960s was the, the last time this level of activation against racial inequity and the right to protest against inequity and restorative justice and all the things that are now very top of mind around Black Lives Matter. And then on the other hand, you have this once in a century pandemic is the way at least it's being characterized. Who knows? But the, the confluence of those two things have been profound for all of us. Many of the shows as a trend spotting show that we're doing nowadays are talking about those things. So I'd say taking the, the framework that you had, which I think is still enormously relevant, but the contexts in which it will be applied are, are kind of upside down. And then also, I think it's a time to understand and empathize with our educators so that you know where their heads are at so that we can be smart about how we train and develop them. I'm happy to go wherever you think makes sense, but I'd love to get some of your perspective on applying the framework that we were just talking about and reaching people in different ways in light of the fact that the world's been really transformed by the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. When I wrote the 2020 edition of the book, when I updated, mm -hmm. the book was published at the very start of the year. So right. Prior to COVID, prior to the sort of resurgence of Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. or the Black Lives Matter movement. And there are a lot of folks who are getting on the bandwagon of working towards racial equity, race, working towards, but you know, this is work that yeah. I, I've been doing for, uh, you know, decades. And mm -hmm. so uh, here it's in line with the recommendations and a lot of the, the things that I have warned us against, those pieces are coming to uh, fruition. I would say about 30,000 people have read Start Where You Are, you know, first and second edition. And yeah. when I wrote the book, I really only thought, like, you know, students in my classroom read it, right. and really, you know, my mom would read it, because <laughs> that's what mothers do, right? Or right. they support their children. So here we sit, and I, it, it's encouraging, and I really wrote it in a scholarly way, but I wanted to write the book, to your point, in a way, so that people could pick the book up mm -hmm. and find it to be useful. Yeah. So the book really is written with tools and so forth so that people, real people can pick the book up and make a difference. And so I move, I transition, I still address the opportunity gaps in the second edition, but I also focus in with what I now call opportunity-centered teaching. And that opportunity-centered teaching, I think, really is a nice uh, transition or connected tissue, if you will, for the spaces in which we find ourselves. Now, 
you know, I talk about the importance of relationship building as an anchor for opportunity center teaching. It showed up in the first edition, mm-hmm. but I really honed in and I, I was reminded of a, a, a situation with Nick Saban, who is the coach, uh, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And for those folks who don't know about, but Nick, let's just say he's a pretty darn good coach, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so some of his players were being interviewed and the re- reporter asked the player, so what is it about Nick Saban, right? That you get, you get up early and you do PT, you are so committed. It's almost like you're walking through a wall for Nick Saban. And, it's, and those young people uh, responded by saying, yes, because I believe he'll walk through a wall for us. Mm-hmm. To me, that resonates, right, with, right, right? with where we are now in this moment. Like our young people need to believe we will walk through a wall for them, right? And so what that means is we have a great responsibility, but we also have a great opportunity to reimagine what education is and is going to be mm-hmm. moving forward. We do not have to go back to the way in which we have done education in the past. And so I'm more hopeful now, Mike, than I've ever been in my entire career. When I see the protests of young people, and I see the faces of young people from various walks of life, you know, young folks who see and are willing to step up and coupled with the fact that we are living through COVID, right? Right. Uh, you know, jeopardizing their own health for the right. sake of racial justice. I am more hopeful now than I've ever been, uh, you know, in the past. And so with that, I think as teachers, we're going to have to really step up and recommit, reevaluate the ways in which we've done education in the past. One more thing, mm-hmm. you know, there are people who talk about this idea of schooling versus education, right? Mm-hmm. And I really hope that teachers, uh, especially in this moment, do two things. One is I hope they will remember their why. Like, why is it? Like, some, because I think sometimes we, as educators, you know, they give so much, we give so much. And we sometimes forget why we started this work in the first place. And then secondly, I hope we're in places where we will say that we want to do away with, we want to reimagine schooling practices Mm -hmm. that really perpetuate and maintain the status quo and push us towards racial, gender, sexual orientation, uh, ethnic transformation in ways that are liberating for all of us. Yeah, that's great. Hope these days is something that is at times in, in scarcer supply than I'd like at least. So so it's great to hear you espousing some hope here. One of the things that I thought was really striking in the book in terms of its context relative to today is that I think in 2010, and even prior to say May of this year, you would still have to make a case to say, we need to feel comfortable talking about race in schools, in K-12. It still may be debatable, but the debate is, to a large extent, I think, lost. It's passed. Like, that moment is passed. I think you can't not talk about race. Although I know folks will continue to advocate for it, and that's why we want to be ready, have folks like yourself, and, and I'll do my part that, to engage in that debate if, if folks feel like you shouldn't be having that type of conversation. But I feel like a lot of people are more ready to clear that hurdle, maybe than at any other time prior well, a, a, do you agree? Is that really an opportunity to seize on that? Like our mindsets changed. Our 
are white educators more ready to accept some of these mindsets as, yes, I've engaged that in that way of thinking. It's an opportunity for me to learn rather than maybe the, the more defensive, yeah, other people are like that, but I'm great. Is the consciousness uh, shifting that's happening something that's net beneficial to uh, a lot of what you've been talking about in your book? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I often found when I started my work attempting to, to help teachers get better, I used to spend a lot of the first three, four sessions of my of class session attempting to just make the case right. that Russ was stating it to their uh, experiences. I'm finding more and more that teachers understand the importance of race. What I'm also finding, however, is that it's, it's a challenge. It's still challenging for them sure. to engage in, in ways. And so I think rather than vilify or critique teachers, you really have to develop ways to support them uh, again in, in their journeys of getting better. But I would also like to add that it's not only talking about race. You know, first of all, if you're in this profession, this is race work. Not because Rich Milner says so, not because you say so, Mike, because all the data points say so. Can you imagine an oncologist not studying or talking about an aspect of cancer? Right. Because that oncologist feels uncomfortable, right? right. right. Like, you know, like, this is race work. Right. So if, if, if that's not what you feel comfortable doing, you got to do one or two things. You got to build that muscle of comfortability or you've got to find another, find another you know, place to to, to, to go or do, to, to do work because this is race work. And until we uh, penetrate that race piece, we are not going to get very far, even within this moment. Right. The other point that I want to make is, it's not only about race and racism, but it's also about what some of my colleagues are calling anti-Black racism, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between talking about racism generally and talking about anti-Black racism. What we're experiencing in this country is anti-Black racism at a rate unlike anything we've ever seen Mm -hmm. uh, in the past. In a lot of ways, we're taking backward steps. When you look at the national discourse and so forth, Mm -hmm. rather than the discourse is forward. So when you think about the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Maude Aubrey and Rakia Boyd and Antoine Rose, you're talking about anti-Black racism, mm-hmm. not simply racism. That's the first point that I think is uh, going to be essential for educators writ large to think about, not only in pre-K, uh, you know, through 12, but also in higher education mm-hmm. as well. And, it's, and then the, the third point that I want to make here is sometimes it, we, we do everything in our power to talk about diversity and equity and inclusion broadly. But we won't say Black Lives Matter. You talk about relationships. Black students need to hear teachers say it. Like in this moment, I need to hear mm-hmm. my white brothers and sisters say yeah. Black Lives Matter. So I want to be clear here that the languaging around what's happening is also essential and will be a, an anchor uh, for what's possible moving forward. Yeah. Isn't it in part that we don't want to say the wrong thing and avoidance and denial is something me and my co-hosts talk about a lot when it comes to race, like avoidance and denial just allows us to quote unquote, get on with our lives rather than do the emotional work of leaning into these conversations. And also some of it is accepting things about yourself that you're not proud of and just understanding, okay, that's, that's something for me to work on. But I think modeling the right 
way to engage in this conversation and even like taking on a little bit of discomfort as a white person. Some things should hurt, you know, like there are some things that should not actually be sugarcoated and blows that shouldn't be softened. Like some of these things actually do need to be felt. Any thoughts on how to build the space so that people can actually feel this stuff? Because uh, I think we tend to equate being emotional with danger and, and risk. Part of which I think is real, but, uh, but it feels like it's, it's probably more part of the teaching mission than the cognitive side, but we spend so much time talking about how to like tell them the right words rather than tell them how to work through their feelings. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really uh, important perspective uh, and question. I want to go back to the title of the book, Start Where You Are, But Don't Stay There, the intentional title. So if you don't feel comfortable, that means that that's the end of the story, right? But if you don't feel comfortable, we have to work at it. Right. Because people's, young folks' humanity right. is, is at stake here. And is it, can, is it emotionally charged? Charged, yes. Mm -hmm. Can it be challenging? Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. But right. not as challenging as it, it feels when, you know, I, I am, you know, walking down the street and racially profiled or when I'm pulled over by the police and, mm -hmm. right? So that's even harder. Right. So, so, so it's, it's not easy work. And the, and so it's really, what I try to do and start where you are is shepherd educators into a process of deep self-reflection, really powerful, uh, examples of what they can and, and should do. Because what we know from good research is that individuals make systems and, and structures and, and mechanisms. So we often talk in the abstract that the system won't allow for or right. These structures are in place, but guess what? We're the structures, right. we're the system, we're the people who contribute to inequity, mm -hmm. albeit unknowingly, in, in the work that we that we do, and in the work that we don't do. Right. As, uh, and so, you know, reading together, book studies, building relationships between and among each other are are critical. There's a there's a beautiful book by Stevenson. The title of it is Just Mercy. And one of the recommendations he makes is you should spend time with someone who is not like, you, mm -hmm. right? That's one of his big recommendations. It's very difficult to hate someone, to discriminate against a group of people with whom you grow to know deep. And until we move outside of our comfort zone, mm -hmm. right? And really try to get to know people outside of our own communities, mm -hmm. whether it's racial, ethnic, language. Sure. We we probably won't get very far. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about practically getting better, you know, that that's, you know, one of the things that we can do very intentionally. And there are lots of prompts in the book to help get people there. Yeah, it does provoke some reflection. And I do think it, to me, I kind of analogize to the, the gym metaphor, pain is weakness, leaving the body, you know, pain is, is ignorance, leaving the body, you know? So like, if this stuff hurts, it's because your consciousness needed to be elevated. Like I know for myself, there were times when I thought colorblindness, that was just how I thought, like, I don't see race. Like I actually had said, I've said that in my life, I'll own it. And I had to, I had to understand why that was a position of privilege, but in some ways that made me understand it more because had I not fall and pray to it, I wouldn't really understand that it was real and I wouldn't be able to embody it and then let it go at the same time. So I think, I just feel like there's a real opportunity and, and I liked the way you tailored the message to a black teacher in a context to, 
a white teacher in a context and then tell it through the perspective of their individual story. Uh, it reminds me of Todd Rose's book, The End of Average, which I've talked about in, on the show before, where each of us contains so many dimensions and so much complexity, but it's actually just bad science. It's your, your outcomes will be bad when you assume that we all behave like an average. Instead, we all behave like individuals. So get to know those individuals. The thing I wanted to get at a, a bit as well is the, the idea of being community-based and being out where your students live and also ideally living where your students live. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. When we move to a place where we are able to spend more time together, I talk about it in the book in four ways. I talk about community immersion. I talk about community engagement. I talk about community attendance. And I talk about community investments. And I, I sort of talk about them in this hierarchical way. Like the highest level is when you actually live in the community yep. of the students with whom you work. Mm -hmm. uh, I realized that could be really complex when we think about charter schools or students who are not in neighborhood schools, but I found that to be one of the highest forms of, of what it means to learn from not only stu students, but learn from community members, mm -hmm. uh, family members, parents, politicians mm -hmm. uh, as well. A second layer, you know, is what I call community engagement. And it really uh, allows for, and it, and it actually shepherds and expects teachers to, you know, to read and study aspects of the community and, and to attend and engage, not only attend, but to engage in councils and board meetings and so forth, where they're bringing their, they're not only taking, right, they're also offering their, their, their strengths and assets as well. Let's face it, educators in, inside of schools, you know, it's just resource rich. They, right. we, we are, educators are resource rich. But sometimes those resources stay in the school. Yes. What I'm suggesting here is uh, community engagement means I take those resources that I have, not that I'm the savior right. of a community, but that I have something to offer mm -hmm. communities in ways. And concurrently, I'm getting something as well because right. I'm deepening my understanding of what's happening in community. Right. Community attendance, uh, you know, someone might show up uh, at a basketball game or, right. or, or, you know, or the lacrosse game or whatever you right. know, it happens to be. But that is a level of, of attendance and a level of, of community connectedness mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. that uh, I think is really important for, for educators to consider. And then the fourth level that I talk about is what I call community investment is simply where do you get your haircut? Right. right? Where right. do you start to, to, to you know, and, and particularly in indigenous people who are, you know, indigenous to that particular place. How do you invest your resources mm -hmm. uh, in those places? What about the mom and pop shop on the corner who lived in that people who right. live in What about the, the restaurant that is owned by people in that community? How do right. you spend your resources? Where do you go to the gym, right? right? Where you decide to go to the gym in that community. So there are lots of ways that we can think about learning from and learning with community. And those are just some of the examples that I attempt to outline in the book as real strategies related to what can be and what should be. Yeah. So you spend a good deal of time in the book talking to white people, like having white people 
be the intended audience because they are a large percentage, uh, like a disproportionately large percentage of our K-12 educators are white. So that's really the the source of the problem in some ways is re-educating that population who's already over-indexed on whiteness. And then the other problem is recruiting and developing non-white educators. Can you talk about those two dimensions? Because it, it seems like you've done a good deal of thinking about both sides of that equation. Yeah, I'm hoping more than anything that what readers get when they pick the book up, when they read the book, is that I am suggesting that when teachers do the work across different racial and ethnic backgrounds, Mm -hmm. they can be and are successful across difference. Right? Does that make sense? You know, in, in my 20 years of conducting this research, what I've found for sure is that teachers from any racial and ethnic backgrounds can be and are successful across racial, gender, other forms of difference. But here's the difference. They are effective and successful when they do the work. It's not only about being a good person or having a big heart right. or having a friend outside of that, your, 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 you know, your identity space. It is hard work at, at pairing and connecting both your own racial, ethnic, gender, cultural identity with that of others and making connections to the content, the subject matter in which you are attempting to teach. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much about empathy. Uh, that's the word that I keep coming back to. Just trying to put yourself in the context and perspective of the, the quote unquote other or the the student or the learner, you know, and, and then also understanding what are you imposing on them in terms of your own model of who they are uh, and how much of that is based on real experience, how much of that is based on your own biases, just being a little more comfortable with that. I would love to get more from you in terms of how to act, like how to take action now. Reaching people these days and the level that they need to be reached, I think is easier in person, face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder. How do we think about dealing with these issues when, when folks are also struggling with their health and their economic livelihood? You know, teachers are concerned about even having to enter back into a physical classroom, putting their own, their own health at risk. How do you build enough time to develop the, the racial understanding and renewed perspective on that when folks are really struggling out there? I think that's a really important point here. First place I would start is by saying that when we focus on achievement, if I hear one more person, I think I'm going to scream. If I hear one more person talk about the fact that our most vulnerable students are going to be behind. Right. Right. And, and, and there's some validity to that. Let me just say, like, I understand that concern. Right. Wouldn't the foundational conversation be, we want to make sure all every person in our community is well. Yeah. Person in our community, you know, and I, and I talk about that in the Opportunity Center, for, you know, psychological and emotional. On the one hand, absolutely. I, I understand that we want to make sure certain uh, groups in the, in our community don't quote unquote fall behind or don't, don't, you know, but I don't care how great the curriculum is. I don't care how great your instructional practices are. If we are not deliberately and carefully attending to the psychology mm-hmm. of the, the mental health of our young people and our teachers. Yes. We're going to get the, 
the very, the very best. It's, so I wanted to start there. And you know, what I've tried to argue in the work and what I've tried to advance is that rather than focusing on achievement, in fact, I would argue we don't even, we don't have achievement gaps anyway, but we really have are gaps in caring. We have mm-hmm. gaps in grace and gaps in vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about grace, administrators really need to have a lot of grace with their teachers. Mm-hmm. And in a very similar way, teachers, I'm begging you, have grace, mm. of, you know, with the students and the families with whom we're working. Mm. Part of how we get to uh, and reimagine, again, thinking about po- possibilities and opportunities mm. here, is we, we move into a, we shepherd ourselves into a place where we understand that while you're hurting, if the things that you're grappling with and going through, so too are family members. Mm-hmm. Some work or your two are your students' family members. On a macro level, I'm actually arguing and I don't want to say argue, that's not what I mean, but I'm I'm putting forth the notion that we should put a moratorium on, on standardized testing. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think in this moment that is not what's most important. Right. Test scores. We should put a moratorium on on gradings mm-hmm. that go on students' uh, formal transcripts. Right, right, right. right. You know, of course, we need formative assessments. But but again, how can we use this moment to get better? Like sometimes we think because we've done a thing in a way for so long that we don't need to, you know, to to make shifts. And so we think about COVID and we think about Black Lives Matter. Like, what's he going to do when turning in his or her or their assignment? Right. What's going to do? When a student, a young person can't log on right. uh, to the internet because right. the internet is, you know, they don't have access to right, right. with the computer. Or when our older students won't see it. What are you going to do when the, when a young person, we are face-to-face again, right? When right. a young person doesn't have his, her, or their mask on. What a dress code violate. Like, we have an opportunity mm-hmm. to, to deeply reimagine how we do school. When you think about what's really happening with this notion of push out and push out by push out, I mean that we often talk about it related to dropout, right? Of uh, mm-hmm. you know, Monique Morris and others really reconceptualize what's happening. And when we talk about how particular bodies are pushed out of school, mm-hmm. right? Uh, let me give you an example. So, black students represent about 16% of the general population, but they represent about 32% of students who receive in-school suspension. Black students represent about 16% of the general population, but they represent about 40% of all students who experience outside of school suspension. What are you saying, Rich? What I'm saying is, you know, when we talk about achievement gaps, no wonder. Right. Right. We, like the students are, are, are not receiving so many instructional hours. Right. right. And so my point is, what can we do differently? We can reimagine push-ups. Right. We can decide right now that we're gonna we're going to amplify grace, vulnerability, and we're going to allow our hearts, right, to connect with our heads mm. in the fight to to try to get better. You know, that's some good stuff. We're we're uh, we're really at time, so uh, I always love to ask our guests, what trends are you observing in the world? What's capturing your imagination these days? Sounds like we talked about a lot of them as, as part of the show, but any parting thoughts, like any things emerging? Uh, 
definitely love the courage to, to have hope about where we're heading in education. I think that's, uh, that's huge. Any final thoughts as, as we wrap up here? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question. I would start by saying that I always say that my best bet uh, is on teachers, right? So in other words, do I think teachers are perfect? No. But when I think about the, the, the possibilities of what can happen in the lives of young folks, I am, a, I am a living witness, as my grandma would say, of what educators can do, right? The, the power of what it means to have an educator committed to, the power of having an educator who will not let, you know, not let their students down, won't let them down. And so I am more hopeful, as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment here, that I am more hopeful now than I've ever been in my career. Uh, I, I hope that we will listen to young people. I've been pushing for a young people series where schools are consistently listening to young people. I'm pushing Black Lives Matter leadership team mm-hmm. where teams are, of educators and students are working together to really tease out and peel back the layers of what that actually means. Mm-hmm. I'm pushing for the resurgence of what they call the morning meeting. One of the things I love about elementary teachers is they understand that you got to know what's going on and mm-hmm. when those young people walk in that, that morning meeting, allowing those young people to talk to you about what's going on with them. Why don't we stop that at third grade? Why don't we stop it at fourth grade? I think it's pre-K through, you know, I'll teach graduate school. Yeah, I, I, I could still use it. Yeah, we need those opportunities. And then I, I would, you know, just end by saying that teachers, we, we need you to be whole and we need you to, to take care of yourselves as well. Yeah. When you're when you eating right and exercising and, and reading and to sharpen your skill set and holding each other accountable with colleagues and so forth, we have a better shot of your being even more outstanding with, with the young people with whom you are working. Mm-hmm. Profound words, deep stuff from Dr. Rich Miller, professor of education, Vanderbilt University. Where would you direct folks if they wanted to learn more, if they wanted to find out what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. My email address is rich, R-I-C-H dot Milner, M-I-L-N-E-R at Vanderbilt.edu. I check every email. It might take me a couple of days, mm. but I respond to every email I get. And that I'm on Twitter at H Rich Milner, M I L N E R. And uh, so feel free to follow me, DM me, mm. uh, or send me an email, and I will respond. You know, what I've come to understand is that some students are going to succeed in spite of us, the other students are going to succeed because of us. Mm. Yeah, deep stuff. So thanks again, Dr. Rich Milner, and we'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. Mm-hmm.